From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 132 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl and uh, joined as always by Ryan and Dave. Uh, Ryan's wandering the earth. Dave is trying to figure out his internet and I'm trying to hide from construction. So it's, we're all rattled this week. (laughs) Literally and figuratively. Yes, in all (laughs) senses of the word, we're we're, we're being rattled this week. But that's okay. We're going to have fun anyway. We got a we got a question, don't we? We're gonna kick off with one of our fun questions. Yeah, so so we actually have feedback. In fact, we have an entire topic based on a question. But the new question for the week is, what was your first W two job? McDonald's. I was at McDonald's. Oh, I'm, I was sorry McDonald's. To hear that. <laughs> I had a ten ninety nine first, but I was I had a ten ninety nine first, but I was my first W two was McDonald's. So, so Dave, uh, follow up question there, real quick. Uh, what did you learn that you still use in your life from that W two job? Uh, it's so the list is so long, but the one that immediately comes to mind is procedure, procedure, procedure. Ooh, well, yeah, McDonald's, absolutely. Yeah. McDonald's. There's a procedure for everything. See, they, and, and they, that, one of the funnest force, jobs that Dave and I ever had was speaking at McDonald's University. It's true. That See, was one of my best speaking gigs ever. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I did that one time for for a sponsored event, and going out there to uh, to Oakbrook was that that was like journeying to the mothership. It was excellent. My first W two job. Uh, this probably won't surprise you guys. I, I worked at an amusement park in uh, just north of Salt Lake City, Utah, where I grew up. I was in the games department, and specifically, I was that guy who would approach you out on the midway and say, "Hey, you want to come over here and pay a dollar and uh, knock over the bottles, and you could win a great prize." Uh, again, are those things for- rigged? No, no, are those things rigged? Is, don't no, the, don't tell me, don't tell this, me. This is the first thing that I will say to you. It is pure basic physics there's absolutely no rigging going on it's angles and momentum and that is literally all it is i will tell you i learned a thousand things out there but most of them related back to i did not ever want to work at an amusement park again (laughs) (laughs) well yeah so all right now we know ryan's a carny so there you go that that explains some stuff huh so my first W-2, I had so many jobs before I had W-2 because I was a paper boy and all kinds of other things. But, it, it was but one of my first W-2 had, had lots of department. at a hardware store, and I worked there for most of high school. And I learned more things than I could possibly imagine. It's, it's almost like I could write a book on what I learned at the hardware store. You're a guy who writes books. You should do that. Yeah. So, and then probably put out a business by Home Depot at this point. I would totally read that book. Well, this week, we want to thank our friends at PCmatic. Think you know PCmatic? Think again. PCmatic is working with MSPs to deliver true zero-trust, default-deny, endpoint security, allowing only trusted applications and blocking all the rest. A lightweight, simple-to-deploy, and easy-to-manage approach to application allow listing. Layering a default-deny approach provides MSPs of all sizes the ability to again focus on prevention. And PCmatic delivers this without impacting performance or efficiency. 
Find out more by visiting pcmatic.com slash MSP and be sure to ask about their exclusive lead sharing program for MSPs backed by a primetime national TV campaign. So first topic, and I'm going to ask it because I know Ryan has thousands of answers. Lucy wrote in with a question and she asked, why the blankety blank do vendors keep overlooking the sales rep who owns the customer in their channel program? Oh, and by the way, she thinks I'm right about the sandwich requiring <laughs> so many layers to Lucy's <laughs> comment. Um, the uh, the first thing that I will say to that topic is she's not she's not wrong. She's absolutely on target. The vast majority of vendor programs design their channel programs to engage down to and through the executive owner or that practice manager of the solution provider. And then they just assume, well, hey, the boss signed up in my channel program. That means, of course, they're about to put all of their people 100% dedicated on representing my product to their customers. And I'm about to make a ton of money through that partner who just signed up. And in the real world, we all remember that doesn't happen that way. Practical experience says, no matter what the boss thinks the business strategy ought to be, no matter what the, the legacy of a business has been, if you cannot engage and persuade a sales human to actually change the stories they tell when they're talking face-to-face -to, -face to customers, when they're making outbound calls, if you can't get them to want to represent your product to their customers, they won't. And, and, and again, you could have five stars of, of quality on your technology. You could have market-leading indicators in the magic quadrant. You could have all the market share on the planet. But if you can't convince a sales human who does not work for you that it's in their best interest to go out and stop doing something else they are already good at doing and start doing the thing that it takes to sell your product, you're never selling anything through the channel. I think that's one of the inherent disconnects in channel productivity that vendors eventually discover, and then that's why they provide sales training and certification. They just don't do it well and frequently or consistently enough because it's just too much product focus. I think this is a massive problem in the industry. Uh, what do you guys think about this? Well, so it's for for me. What's interesting is is that there's a there's a hidden flaw in a way of the way channel management it has to be done. Program leaders who run channel programs don't care about individual customers. They care about the generic customer and the customer at volume. I'll speak like to my own personal experience running this. Is I look. I like to. I genuinely care about the people that I work with. But when I'm running the program, I worry about hitting my own number. That's the financial incentive that I've got. I am measured based on the number of things I can get through the program to hit my goal. Is that acquisitions? Is that sales growth? Is that what you know? Is that expansion? Whatever that is, I care about the people that fit in that program and flow through it to help me hit my goal. Thus, at some level, if you aren't one of those that fit my program. I care about you less because you won't help me hit my number, right? And so while I care about everyone and I know that I'm playing a volume game and I've got to get them through there, the ones that fit the system, I care about more because I can get them to hit my number. That's where, the, that's where oftentimes a 
kind of sales rep mentality will fall down is, is if I'm running a system at the level above you and you're the individual rep and you just care about your account, we have a, dis a disparity between the two of us in the way that we're approaching it. So it's, it's not necessarily that the leadership doesn't care because they do, but what they care about is optimizing the system to ensure the most flows through it correctly. And thus anybody that's spiky or doesn't fit or whatever, they, they're a little problematic. Well, you know, that, that doesn't hit, help me hit my number. Well, the other thing is that there's kind of this missing piece because what both of you spoke to is there is a, a vendor who wants to push things and they've got people who are motivated and, and you know, basically they're told, hey, you get this much feedback, you get this many bonus points if you can reach these targets. But then you've also got at the MSP side, uh, you've got people who are new, like they don't know the stories to tell. And I love that analogy, but they also like they want to be good at this, but there's nobody whose job is to care about the underperforming sales reps. So so what happens is at the on the vendor side, very frequently they get used to not caring about the sales reps at the local level because most of them are not that very good. And so there's a handful that stand out. They get all the attention. The rest of them, it's like, look, I have to sell to the masses. I have to go straight to the customer and go around the people who are supposed to be the rep um, because that's how I actually meet my numbers for the quarter. See, and you, you described perfectly the phenomenon of channel conflict. And everybody understands that channels ought to be orderly and structured and predictable and they ought to add value at each layer and so what is in the best interest of the vendor by definition is in best interest of their associated distributors and their solution providers if you design it correctly everybody's incentives line up the problem is that uh there's a question of patience and visibility patience in but the sense of is you're that a new even sales. possible is it possible to, to design it to take care of every single layer or is there always going to be a gap well there there will be a gap right you it's your good point you can absolutely align all of those incentives but systems and aggregate automation will never cross the gap between those organizations that's the job description of a human being that's why channel managers and channel sales reps exist at the vendor level that's why distributors have account managers and not just not just an inbound sales rep who takes your order and again and places the po but somebody who calls you and says well, what are you, what's your business doing and how are you guys feeling and are you actually growing in the future? What can we help you with? That's strictly a human function. And I have been Johnny Appleseed on a quest around our industry for the last 25 years trying to make that function less sales pipeline administrative and more business development nurturing. Right. Because, Dave, you, you hit it. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense in the world for me to invest time in somebody that's never going to sell my stuff if I'm the vendor, except if I never invest time in them, how will they ever sell my stuff? The way you bridge that gap is by recruiting, onboarding, ramping, and nurturing. And that's expensive. That's The way I tease about it is when I talk to the vendor side of things, it's called ROI, not IOR. And what I mean is it's return on investment, meaning you invest first and later you get the money back. 
But right now, the way that coverage models and investments and marketing dollars are allocated, it's, oh, if you already sell a bunch of my stuff, I'll give you some of that marketing money and sales coverage. Uh, if you're only giving money to the people that are already selling your stuff, then by definition, the people who don't sell your stuff never will. Right. Now, remember, the, la the last little piece in this is, is to remember that the lower the average value of the sale itself, the more this will be systemized and the less the people go into that. Ryan's implying that the channel sale results in sizable enough sales worthy of humans. Oftentimes we are selling those, if you, particularly if you think about it in software as a service, where you're selling something where the margin is, is small, like the, the volume is high, but the revenue dollars are low. Anything that deviates from my system, any human involved in that blows all my profit, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right? So, so, I'm, so you, you've, you've got to layer that factor in too. Like if you're selling hundreds of thousands of dollars of stuff, I am happy to customize. If you're moving $9.99 a month, you know, software as a service, yeah, not so much. Like, yeah, and, and so like that variable has to be factored in too. It, it absolutely does. You are correct. It, and that's the difference between channel sales and channel management to be to put a very fine point on it. Right. We <laughs> will come back to this topic because I think this is one of those things about our show that is very interesting and inherently relevant. We're going to talk to you guys about very cool stuff and new technologies that come out all the time. But we're also going to come back and say, how do you build a business around that stuff? And the nature of our business is you can't do it independent of vendors and solutions. Everybody has to win together. And most of us need help in figuring out how to do that. But let's move on to our second topic here. So the idea is um, everybody has that. Anyone who has ordered a pizza at some time in the last 10 years has probably experienced the Domino's tracker. The idea is a little online widget that shows you you place the order and then it's at step number one, at step number, it's in the oven. And Dave is now putting it in the box and Carl is now putting it in his car and it's rushing towards you. Um, uh, that's some reasonably simple logic, but it was utterly transformative technology for Domino's business. This concept, right? You understand that technology? The government is now taking a look at that technology and looking at it as a way to not only improve the effectiveness of services that you get federal, state, and local services, right? Think of you're going to apply for a, a new license at the DMV and you've submitted the paperwork and then it goes into a black hole and nobody ever knows what the hell happened to it. Imagine how much more satisfied you would be as a citizen if you could watch your government services progress incrementally to you. Guys, I think this is fascinating. What are your thoughts? First thought, uh, don't use the DMV as your example because I don't think you can program this in COBOL. Yeah, that's the excellent point. There's, uh, there's some <laughs> legacy land weights there that have to be removed. So, all right, but I'll put, I'll even push back a little bit there because I have to go to the DMV shortly and deal with with some pit bit. They actually let me schedule appointments online. They have a progress like there's a little bit of a progress track. Like you must have these pieces of paperwork ready when you arrive. There's like a checklist to to approve. Like I actually have to give a little bit of a nod to the Virginia DMV who is who is, I'm not saying that it's like this amazing system, but I was actually impressed that I was able to get the services online, have an expectation of what my deliverables were, what the next steps were, 
book everything online, get it all. I mean, the, the whole process was online. What I thought was fascinating, and I would encourage everyone to read this article because they, what was fascinating was the idea of Domino's innovation was not around the food, although they did pivot on the, the, the recipes of their pizza. The innovation was making it easier to do the ordering and making that part of the whole entire process. Like, for example, for a while, I mean, you open the Domino's app, there'd be a big button that said, we're about to order your favorite pizza if you don't say no in the next 15 seconds, <laughs> right? That, that, that actually like gamifies the process, but also excel, accelerates the selling. What this article dives into is, is how state governments were looking at that model to understand how can we set better expectations about where you are through our multiple processes. And as I read this, I just kept looking and saying, these are all things that we could take back to so much of the way that we do business. I mean, just down literally to the way that I think about uh, managed services delivery. I'm just riffing and saying like, well, you know, why can't we set expectations of where your issue is? What are the next step buses? What have a visual representation? Like, why are we not doing innovation like this in terms of customer management around the way that we deliver these services? And there's there's actually many, many examples. This isn't just a Domino's thing. I mean, you've seen it with DoorDash and, you know, Drizzly and everybody else. It's like, oh, so uh, your food is being cooked. It's being prepared. It's, it's being, you know, whatever, sealed up by Bob. And now it's being picked <laughs> up by Dave. And, you know, it's it's in the car and you can track it as it drives across town and all of that. In California, so our DMV, we can set appointments and it just means that you're the first one to sit in a chair the longest. But we also have a thing where uh, when we send in our ballot, we get a note that says your mail-in ballot has been received. Your mail-in ballot has been opened. Your mail-in ballot has been counted. And they basically tell you like, no, uh, it either was counted or, hey, you screwed up. So you need to go fill out another ballot. <laughs> Right. They, you know, so uh, so so it can be done. And I do think uh, this is a great area of innovation for somebody to say, hey, you know what? Let me plug this into my PSA like your your ticket is next up for us to remote into your system or, you know, we're going to remote into your system between 12 and one. So, hey, you know, go ahead and go to lunch and uh, we'll just take care of all your stuff. See, so I, I think that would be very cool. I, I think it would be cool. And Dave, to answer your question very specifically. Um, the reason that we don't do this in our technology solutions and services businesses is, as the article points out, it's all built on workflow, which is the derivative of procedure and process, which the vast majority of people, unlike you, were not taught how to do in their formative years <laughs> and jobs. And they, <laughs> they live in a world of we do complicated things, we try real hard, and we deliver some results. Well, that's not a trackable workload of I'm working on it. Uh, the, the workflow has to be distinct, defined, repeatable, trackable, measurable, etc. Um, if you would like to know more about this topic, I could recommend a man named Carl who has a book that would teach you <laughs> what and why and how, right? Um, these are the things that I think separate good technology from good outcomes from technology, right? They're phenomenal tools and really cool pieces of software out there in the world. And people just don't use them correctly because, you know, writing procedures is hard and it's boring. I don't like ISO 9001. I don't like all of these other things. We're just gonna be creative and figure it out. Well, 
good luck with that when somebody else automates their stuff and steamrolls you into oblivion because, I, I mean, look, at it, the, as the article says, all the pieces are here. It's cloud-based technology. It's real-time systems integration. It is data tracking and, and notification. You get into an IoT world and it will accommodate things outside of the fixed wired network. Oh, we're going to be able to track this current status real time of unbelievably complicated workflows in the real world. And if you can't do that in your service business, you're the dinosaur. And I would be remiss if I didn't highlight that this is also a services opportunity to sell to customers. Uh, I mean, I think this, this use of technology and implementing systems that do this, yeah, that, this is the value, again, the valuable stuff. This is the stuff that makes a difference on people's, in the way they deliver money, services and the way they make money, way more than all of the other stuff. Don't get me wrong, that stuff's the base stuff's important, but you gotta, you gotta deliver the higher value stuff. It's also a very personal kind of thing, right? To be able to say, we're coming to your house, we're gonna fix your stuff. Uh, I get similar things for Comcast and for my electric company. Like I know when somebody's in a truck driving to my house and so forth. You know, these tools actually, we're at the point where if you've got the right PSA, you could create this now because we have connections to SMS messaging and so forth. You could create these workflows if you were energetic enough. I would love to hear from a listener who said, hey, we figured out how to do this because we just have to say, you know, we're on the way, you're next and so forth. Uh, create a little bit of your own uh, flow and uh, we'll add the graphics later. Yeah, and, and not for nothing, if you could add the skin of a low-code application for the UI on top of that, you could take all that interconnected logic and make it look slick like the Domino's tracker, uh, people would think you were a professional. <laughs> Plus throw a pizza in. Get a pizza at the end. And if, and if you throw in a pizza, and if you deliver the pizza by robot, then I win a bet. So I'm just saying. <laughs> Topic number three. <clears throat> so... Facebook has decided that they are going to delay introducing Instagram for children. Yeah. And no one was disappointed. <laughs> so what, what a strange thing. And I just, I'm interested in this topic in part because we actually have laws that prohibit advertisers from focusing on children. And yet all of them do and all of the social media fall down really hard on this topic. They fail very, very badly. I was telling these guys before we went on the air that, you know, I do a lot of YouTube advertising and we're constantly cleaning out our lists because we say, oh, here's all these clicks where we're spending our entire budget on eight-year-olds playing some game, but their advertisers are not supposed to advertise to children. The gamers are not supposed to advertise to children. The YouTube is not supposed to advertise to children. And yet they are clearly putting these ads in front of children and I'm paying for it. And so I have to clean out my side of the system, not because I don't want to advertise to children, but because children don't have any money and can't buy my products, right? So, you know, it's not that I care about the law per se. I don't want to waste my money, but it's clear from the activities I have to take that all of these systems are focusing on children when we have intentionally said, you shouldn't do that. Um, on, on Facebook and Instagram, it just seems like a really, really bad idea. We have enough problem keeping our children safe online without Facebook creating a program that's specifically designed to target them. 
Well, I mean, look, and I'm also going to laugh at you. Know, this is, we're coming right off of the Wall Street Journal doing their Facebook files, and we're literally finding out that teenage girls are, you know, more likely to to, to have, you know, uh, body dysmorphia because of using Instagram. I know. Let's give it to kids even younger. Uh, like, I mean, I, I think you know, there's there's a real analogy here. If we're, if we're diving into social media, these advert, and in, in particular social media, and in particular Facebook. There's a real analogy here to the tobacco companies, you know, is, oh, yeah, our product is great. But yes, they are. But they are intentionally addictive and they are trying to find younger and younger consumers to get on board the platform. Like, just like I always talk about, we don't like dumping uh, chemicals into the water system. We need to be understanding this. And, and I, I'm, I continue to look at this and say algorithmic amplification is a form of editorializing and publishing. I think it is one, there's a difference between hosting a comment that is put online versus an algorithm amplifying a comment. I think they are two different things. It is a measurable difference. And the second is different from the first. And it, it, it does not get the same kind of protections that uh, that something just posted shows. Yep. See, I will say hell yes to that comment because I believe that's the essential distinction here. Oh, well, we're just a platform. We're not editorial. Therefore, you can't hold us responsible. Um, as that, that algorithm didn't just grow on a tree and you went outside and picked it and put it in your computer. You wrote that thing. You can edit that thing. You are responsible for the functional recommendation. Now, the fact that it happens a billion times a second and it's too large for you to moderate, that's not our problem. That's your problem if you are the platform who is intentionally doing that. To Carl's point, as a child of the late 60s, early 70s, um, I grew up in a world of Saturday morning television. And I, I was very well aware of Saturday morning television advertising. And, and I learned very young that, uh, you no, know, your mom does not want to hear about that commercial you just saw on TV. And no, she's not about to go out and buy that thing for you. Please don't ask for the pink and purple breakfast cereal, right? And then they brought in laws to say this is excessive. This is abusive. You need to be careful. Okay. So for 40 odd years, we've all agreed that that's something we should do. Instagram for kids is not advertising to kids. It is an entire business model designed to manipulate kids with deliberate communications technologies that are radically more sophisticated than a 30 second commercial that I was exposed to on a Saturday morning. This is algorithmically driven. It is very sophisticated psychological modeling targeted at children. You can't even describe that business idea in a white paper without violating the spirit of those laws. Like the law says, let's protect our kids from manipulative communications. Oh, hey, I know. Let's go out and build an entire business model that is designed 100% to do that thing you said is forbidden. I, I mean, again, the the Wall Street Journal stuff on, on Facebook tipped me over an edge with those guys. I've always been a critic. And the fact that they know. It, it's not just that they're doing bad things. They freaking know it. And they do nothing about it. And these are the guys we're going to trust with building a business to target our kids. Hell no. Well, part of it is also 
um, you know, Dave mentioned the algorithms. Facebook hasn't figured out how to make their system work for adults. So <laughs> maybe we should do that before we look at the kids. But, you know, if you've had kids, you know, uh, like my daughter, uh, she used to leave the house with no makeup on. But magically, by the time she got to school, she had makeup on. Uh, she couldn't have a uh, MySpace account unless I had a MySpace account that could view her MySpace account. Right? Those were the rules back in the day. Um, but of course, uh, I don't know at what point, 13, 14, 15, she just figured out how to create a different MySpace account with a different <laughs> email, you know. Uh, you know, kids are not stupid and they are on Instagram and they are on Facebook. Um, but I think the idea that you're going to set up an entire space for them that then becomes a focused target of the Russian mobs is just like that is the next layer of hell and i and it in some ways it sounds funny but i gotta tell you it is seriously dangerous stuff it, it is it is well something we need to keep a serious eye on go ahead well let me let me push back though you you said something you said they have not figured this out for adults and let me leave this thought in everyone's head yes they have because they know how to make money and they are rewarding their shareholders and shareholders are investing in it and holding on to the stock and everyone is making money. So from their art, from their perspective, from their perspective, they figured it out. Their, their sensors are, are literally having mental issues because of the stuff they have to deal with and, cl and clean up. Uh, and they are closing millions of accounts per month still. Like, just, it's a catch-up game. So they, there's a, a huge piece of Facebook's expenses goes to trying to make it acceptable for just normal people to show up. And so, you know, they, they know it's not quite where it should be. Well, they, they have not figured out how to run their business in a way that does not damage society. That's actually exactly what they are intending to do uh, to put it as plainly as possible that's not a flaw in their system that's a feature yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, the system is functioning exactly as they intend that's just, i just need to highlight that they, the only you know financial incentives are what drive these choices and right now they're being rewarded for their choices and that's that's how it works you are two you have two ways of changing making the change either the change comes from changing the financial model because of whatever reason they're incentivized by the market or regulators say these are ways that you cannot do that. And you just have to understand that those are the two ways that happen. If the market isn't going to change, it's got to be the other. Sadly, we're out of time. Uh, Facebook is evil. <laughs> Huge shout out to Lucy. Thank you for uh, your feedback. If anybody has a feedback on the question of the day, Please let us know. In the meantime, share this with all of your friends. Give us a Facebook uh, thumbs up or whatever on your social media. Maybe on LinkedIn because we just railed on Facebook. Maybe do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah, promote we... the heck out of this episode over on Facebook. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. In the meantime, that will do it for episode 132 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it.
in the technology business.